Welcome to Into Theology. I am joined with Ian Clary, who's in a much better audio and video setup, so that I think we might be able to actually hear what he has to say today. But I won't get to sound like a mobster with marbles in my mouth. I mean, that's an also that's a really great look or sound, I suppose. So I'm okay yeah. with it. But for the sake of listeners, maybe we should let them hear what you have to say. There we go. Uh, we're going to tackle uh, chapter 25, the final resurrection. This is the end of book three before we enter into book four, which Ian and I are actually pretty excited about. Yeah, when we started this pod or when we started this topic of Kelvin's Institutes, I was not thrilled about book four. But for whatever reason, like think like a switch turned on and now I'm like all about book four. I'm, I'm pumped for it. So I'm really excited. However, this might be, I don't know if this is the coolest section we've read so far, but maybe just because of the topic, it's the coolest section. It's about the final resurrection, the resurrection of the just and the unjust. So I, you were mentioning a section you wanted to read. Do you still want, want to do that? Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. You're, you're, no, you're absolutely right. This, I, I read this chapter and it just went by so quickly because I just was so into everything that he was saying. And there's a couple of things where I think you and I in previous podcasts had had questions about Calvin that I feel like he answered pretty well uh, here, especially when it comes to things like the nature of the body and it, just even the very opening section of chapter 25 here is so encouraging. I, that's what I just thought I'd read um, just because of the, this, this resurrection hope that we have that really kind of gets us through the struggles of, of life. And uh, so I'll just start, I'm going to read from page 987 and uh, I'll just read this whole opening uh, section on the uh, <clears throat> importance and of and hindrance uh, to the resurrection hope. Right before just, you read, can I just say one thing? No. The first phrase, Christ the son of righteousness from Malachi 4.2. Yeah. Calvin's a boss on the Old Testament. Quick side note. Yeah. <laughs> okay, go on. Sorry. Says the guy with a PhD in Old Testament. I'll, I trust you on that. So. <laughs> I mean, I just think it's cool. Yeah, he's a, he's, a, he's a baller. All right, let's do it. So Christ, uh, the son of righteousness, shining through the gospel and having overcome death has, as Paul testifies, brought us the light of life. Hence, we likewise, by believing, pass out of death into life, being no more strangers and sojourners, but fellow citizens of the saints and of the household of God, who made us sit with his only begotten son in heavenly places, that we may lack nothing for full happiness. Yet, lest we be still grievously exercised under hard military service, as though we obtain no benefit from the victory won by Christ, we must cling to what is elsewhere taught concerning the nature of hope. Since we hope for what we do not see, and as is elsewhere stated, faith is the indication of things unseen. So long as we are confined in the prison house of the flesh, we are away from the Lord. For this reason, the same Paul says in another passage that we have died and our life is hid with Christ and God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then we also will appear with him in glory. This then is our condition, that by living sober, righteous, and godly lives in this age, we may await our blessed hope and the coming of the glory of our great God and of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Here then we need more than common patience that we may not in our weariness reverse our course or desert our post. Therefore, whatever has so far been explained concerning our salvation calls for minds lifted up to heaven so that we may love Christ whom we have not seen and believing in him may rejoice with unutterable and exalted joy until as Peter declares, we have outcome, uh, have the outcome of our faith. For this reason, Paul says that the faith of love and of the godly with regard to the hope that rests in heaven. When therefore with our eyes fi fast fixed on Christ, we wait upon heaven and nothing on earth hinders them from be bearing us to the promised blessedness. The statement is tr truly fulfilled that where our treasure is, our heart is. 
Hence arises the fact that faith is so rare in this world. Nothing is harder for our slowness than to overcome, uh, climb over innumerable obstacles in pressing on toward the goal of the upward call. To the huge mass of miseries that almost overwhelms us are added the jests of profane men, which assail our innocence when we willingly renounce the allurements of present benefits, seem to strive after a blessedness hidden from us as if it were a fleeting shadow. Finally, above and below us, before us and behind, violent temptations besiege us, which our minds would be quite unable to sustain were they not freed of earthly things and bound to the heavenly life, which appears to be far away. Accordingly, he alone has fully profited in the gospel who has accustomed himself to continual meditation on the blessed resurrection. I read that and I was like, wow, that is just like so awesome. So encouraging. That last quote there is basically like, if you want to profit from the gospel, you just need to sit and think about the meditation, uh, meditate on, on this blessed resurrection. And that really kind of then sets the stage for everything he's going to be talking about now in the chapter, right? He's going to talk about this kind of like what he describes as a prison house of the flesh. What does that mean? Uh, and then he's going to talk about kind of moving from this kind of lowly body to a qualitatively higher body, even though there's this can continuation between the two. And uh, yeah, I just, I was just really blown away by the whole thing. So. Well, um, there's a number of things that are just fascinating throughout this section. Well, one, his use of the old Testament. So can I just read you Malachi four, two. How, no. This is how he opens. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Um, it's just a, it's a, anyways, I just think it's a fascinating title for Christ, name of Christ. Yeah. Um, I, 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 that's new to me. So, I mean, maybe I've seen it before, but it's new to me uh, at this moment. Uh, I think a couple of things. One is his uh, faculty psychology. Again, mind is pretty important. It's kind of like your soul, if you want to think of it that way. Yeah, sort of like in a Bonaventure soul mind sort of thing. Yeah. Um, set your mind on things above, not on things below is kind of from Philippians. And you can kind of see it as basically thematic here. Yeah. The upward calling that Christ has for us that, that Paul talks about is here, the, the heavenly life. Um, yeah, all that. It's utterly fascinating. And maybe even contextually, it might be useful to note that like Kelvin was a super at this time anyway a super sickly person yeah yeah in fact I mean, after a schooling he was his, yeah for much of his life he was so so his body was like a body of death like yep. he had all sorts of melodies and sicknesses and um passing stones all, yeah. all sorts of just Boy, he was covered in he had boils and stuff was yeah like when you think of calvin in his age where people died frequently um a lot of what's going on here makes a lot like sometimes you read him and he's just so like blunt and direct and maybe a little harsh but like he really does live on the cusp of life and death yeah we live in a medical and technological society that protects us from death from the frequency of it anyways and from seeing it but like you know he would have seen a lot of it i mean his he was married for a short time he had a child who died probably within a few months of birth his wife died yeah. um he'd see death all the time so I think resurrection of, of the body probably took on a different feel for him than it might for us. Yeah. So when he's on 988, they're describing life as this huge mass of miseries that almost overwhelm us. Um, you know, and he's like, there's other things added to that, but man, he's, you know, he's, he's speaking from some real experience there. Yeah. Well, in the, uh, I believe it was the 14th century, the, the so-called black death took out like roughly half of Europe. 
So, I mean, like if 50% of people in Canada or the U.S. died, we that would be just crazy and shocking. Now, that wasn't what happened in Calvin's day, but there was plagues in Calvin's day as well and frequent death. I just think we probably kind of miss the actual misery of, of regular human life if yeah. you live in a place like Canada and you enjoy basic health. Yeah. So that's just an interesting point. Well, it's an interesting application then to what we are all going through on a global scale with the COVID mm-hmm. pandemic, right? So lots of fear uh, that people have. And so this is just a great little kind of takeaway from Calvin here. Is it like, hey, like he's saying that you actually, he's using the word of clinging, like you have to cling to this hope. And it's this hope that's actually going to get get you through everything uh, because this world really is, as he says, there is a fleeting shadow and we have a, a greater hope to look forward to in the resurrection. Honestly, whenever, whenever, uh, you know, if one of my students or somebody that I'm friends with, if they have a, a Christian loved one pass away, um, I will often email them or put in a card, thank God for the resurrection, you know, cause that's, that really is the hope that, that we are to cling to is the fact that, Hey, like actually this, this life is actually very fleeting. And mm-hmm. you're going to be looking that person in the eye and it's going to be like, wow, where did that, where did that life go that we just lived? Because I'm, I'm seeing you now. And it felt like it was going to be forever before I saw you. And here you are. Well, well, another way to summarize that last sentence, you read a continual meditation on the blessed resurrection is to, to remember your death. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a step forward, I suppose, but it is remembering that there is a resurrection, that death is not the end. I do think that we, we probably underplay that. I mean, one of the things is like, if you're a Christian, I am like, what, like maybe don't fear the guy who can destroy your body, but the one who can throw your soul into Hades, like, meaning like we have such a confidence of in the very worst case scenario, namely that we die is the best thing that could happen to you Yeah. or has the best result is a better way to put it. Yeah. Um, it's bad that it happens to you, but it has the best, like you win. Yeah. <laughs> if you die, you win. Yeah. Yeah, and so it, it's just one of those things in the Christian life that I think we, I don't know why. I mean, I think our culture is very young centered, very now centered, very experience centered. And for most people still living in this world, life is not that pleasant. No, think about think, what's going on in India right now. I mean, in I India, a, I, read I think Peru. Like the, the Ganges right now is just filled yeah. with dead bodies that you can smell it from everywhere. If you lived, uh, if you live in Israel or Palestine right now, like your yeah. nights are full of the sound of violence, at least if, if you don't see it necessarily. I just think that there's so much going on in this world that isn't pleasant. And sometimes if you live, I mean, look, if you live in Canada or the US and you make 30,000 a year or whatever, you're still richer than most people in the world, yep. you know, <laughs> like, uh, and depending on what state you live in, 30,000 a year is actually pretty, like, pretty legit. Yep. Um, it just kind of depends on where, if you're in New York City, of course not, but. No. So I, I don't know. Um, Calvin says a lot of things in this chapter that's cool. Uh, the immortality of the soul is fascinating. Yeah, because yeah, I mean, he he like so he uses that phrase that I just read, right? He describes uh, us as being confined in the prison house of the flesh, right? Which uh, sounds negative. Yeah, it sounds like that doesn't sound good. And then he goes on uh, number two on page nine eighty eight. He starts talking about Plato. And Plato recognizing that the highest good is is the union is our union with the form of the good, which would be described as God. Uh, yep. He's like Plato sees this. He's like, yeah, Plato's right. He just doesn't see it very clearly, but he's right as far as he goes. But then he just basically goes on and just kind of like smacks that sort right. of like extreme dualistic Platonism in the face by basically saying 
but we actually we have this union with the right. highest good yeah that's a good point with our, with our physical bodies so even though now our bodies are this prison house it's not because they're matter because he's going to go against the manichees mm-hmm, mm-hmm. shortly um it's not because they're material it's because they're fallen and then this qualitative it's because they're temporary and yeah. fallen yeah you think it's interesting so i was talking um and we should invite him for this too, Mark, uh, to the podcast, but Mark Jones a couple of days ago. Oh, cool. Yeah. Mark's a good friend. And um, they're talking about like the Puritans in particular, but like how well they read outside of their circles. They read yeah. Roman, Roman church, like all, all sorts of people. And if you read something like Calvin's familiar with Plato and, and all this kind of stuff, granted, it's a sort of negative engagement, but it's still constructive insofar as Plato gets some things right. We can kind of, we can actually talk about the idea because Plato has. Yeah. So then there's something to hang your thoughts on. Yeah. Whereas I think, um, and the Puritans were very broad, very broadly read. And, but one of the things that we do today, I think, which, which is a problem is like, we say, okay, well, Plato's wrong. Therefore I don't read him. Right. But, but Calvin's not like that. He'll read him and critique him. But the, the fact that he can critique Plato actually helps to construct the ideas that help us to concretize faith. Yeah. Um, it's yeah, just, I'm- I'm reading, uh, I'm just finishing up John Coffey's really incredible study of Samuel Rutherford, the Scottish Covenanter and Puritan. It's exactly the case. Like his whole book, Lex Rex, is constructed on natural law thinking and it comes straight out of, you know, the ancient philosophers and uh, and he knows his stuff like the back of his hand. And yet at the same time, he's going to critique it and he's going to give it a very, especially Old Testament reading. Um, Yeah. So it's, it's, that, 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 that's helpful because it shows the correspondence between natural revelation right. and and special revelation which there has to be i mean paul says look nobody uh hates their own body so given that natural fact doesn't it help you to think about how we ought to like love one another in yeah. ephesians um I, yeah. i'm saying it wrong but you know the passage i'm talking no, about I'm right totally, yeah, yeah um the, and there's the, all the, things like doth not nature alone tell you it's a shame <laughs> yeah. I, I actually think knowing nature helps you to know special revelation better yeah yeah, and that's Calvin, like if you want to know the logic of the body, the body of Christ, you got to figure out what a human body is. You want to know all these kinds of things, like the renewal of the mind. You know, Paul says is the center of sanctification. Romans twelve. Well, yeah. what is the mind? Yeah. <laughs> right. So, like, I do think there are um, things that we miss by just saying I'm not going to read the secular people because they're wrong. Calvin reads them has the ability then to talk about them critically, not, not saying Plato's right or whatever, but to actually have the concepts on which to hang basic ideas upon and show how revelation then clarifies supplants and then you have a concrete idea of what's going on. Per, per what you were saying on nature too, he does that on, uh, on 993 in uh, section four, where he's talking about God's omnipotence mm. uh, and, and resurrecting the body. He, he gives, he says, still Paul by setting forth a proof from nature uh, confutes the folly of those who deny the resurrection. He says, you foolish men, uh, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And so Paul right there in first Corinthians 15. Proof is by using, nature. Look at that. Yeah, proof by nature. It's right there. And it's this idea of like, you put something in the ground and it comes back like a seed or whatever, you know, uh, that, see, that's but it, com- of... it comes to life by dying. Yeah. So that's the thing. So the proof by nature. So first Corinthians 15, all about the resurrection, which is entirely special revelation. Kelvin, I think makes a point that look, Nobody got this because they all thought the body was bad. They missed yeah. what revelation gives us. Yeah. And yet to make sense of the resurrection of the body, Paul then talks about farming. Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. Um, so I, one of the weird things in our day is, you know, the Belgian, I always bring this up, but the Belgian confession talks about the two books, right? Yep. The book of nature, the book of scripture. 
and they're actually allies and help us to help us to mutually understand one another. But we, because we've sort of pushed away nature as being unhelpful and unuseful and gone to the Bible, we've begun to misunderstand the Bible because you need nature to help understand the concepts. Yep. Like why is that? Why would you love your own body, namely your wife and the church? Because if you look at your own human body, of course you're going to love yep. it. That's, that's why it's in the, like, that's why the analogy is there. Yep. And likewise, this proof from nature too. By the way, there's something to underline in the next paragraph on page 993 here. I love it. And I'll tell you why. I'll read it first. It's the second sentence of um, paragraph two, section four, page 993. But let us remember that no one is truly persuaded of the coming resurrection unless he is seized with wonder and ascribes to the power of God its due glory. All right. Seized by wonder. I know that Calvin almost certainly does not read Gregory of Nyssa. Like, there's no, nothing to indicate that he does. I don't know. I, thought, I mean, I, he really, from what I understand, I think if you read in Tony Lane's book on Calvin and the Church Fathers, I think he says in there that Calvin really loves the Cappadocian Fathers. Yeah, but maybe Chrysostom and Nazianzen. I'm, no. Maybe I'm wrong. Uh, I don't know. I just don't know. I, I'm not saying, I guess I don't know that he didn't, but yeah. this is a very Nissen-type statement hmm. because Nissen's, Gregory of Nyssa says, look, we can apprehend God, not comprehend him. But the apprehension of God is to the fact that because God is the infinitude of, uh, of, of wonder and being, the great news is that we can continue to know him forever and always be wrapped up in, by wonder into his infinitude of, of goodness. Yep. And so the idea of like comprehending God is, is impossible and that's the best thing ever. Yeah. It's interesting too, because Plato will say the same thing. He says something like uh, to the effect that all philosophy begins in wonder. Mm, yeah. You know? And the Bible actually talks about wonder as well, too. So it's not just like this. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, Kelvin. Anyways, that's, it's just a little side note. I just love that little phrase from him. I thought it was just kind of cool. Yeah. Uh, Kelvin does talk about the the, uh, the Kiliasts. I'm yeah. not sure he fully has understood the Kiliast argument, but it, it is I think he's fun. probably thinking of a very narrow, narrow um, example of, of Kiliasm. Um, yeah. So what, so if you're, if you're a premillennialist and you're reading Calvin here, you don't have to be like, Oh no, you know, cause <laughs> your, your premillennialism is probably a lot different than what's going on here. <laughs> Although if you're a certain kind of premillennialist, you'll argue, no, we are exactly the same as the early church ones. And then you're screwed. <laughs> yeah. So he, he says a number of things about the, uh, thousand year period and, and Calvin for his part says, look, in summary, um, if you think, I mean, the end of all things, it's this, it's this blessed kind of beatitude. So why are you throwing this thousand years temporary things? Yeah. It doesn't really make sense. Yeah. Yeah. And, and one reason that he gets there, I think, is on the very last page of this section. And we'll go back and read some of the Kilius stuff. But he makes this really interesting hermeneutical point. Page 1008, the very end. Yeah. The middle of the page, after the second Thessalonians 1.9 citation, he says, look. And whenever through physical metaphors, the prophets strike us with fear although they employ no exaggeration to match our sluggishness, um, they still mingle with their message foreshadowing of the coming judgment. Meaning he sees a lot of the physical judgments in the Old Testament about the eschatological judgment. Likewise, you can infer that when he sees the physical promises in the Old Testament, he sees them as the eschatological beatitude. That's that's what I'm kind of reasoning backwards. So then it makes sense why he, like he says, for example, on page 995, uh, for for the number of 1,000 does not apply to the eternal blessedness of the church, but only to the various disturbances that await the church while toiling on earth. On the contrary, all scripture proclaims that there will be no end to the blessedness of the, blessedness of the elect or the punishment of the wicked. 
Um, so he, he's just really not going with this temporary kingdom thing. It doesn't make sense to him. It's yeah. like a logical Which, because you're, it's the physical thing that's promised. So why wouldn't you see the elevated eschatological fulfillment? Like, why yeah. would you go back to the, the shadow? Yeah. I, I've sort of thought along the same, like I'm not a premillennialist and I've always kind of thought, oh, it just see, always seemed superfluous to me. Like what, what is, what is the point redemptive history of this suddenly this weird thousand years? Well, you have not read J. Alva McLean's The Greatness of the Kingdom then. I guess not. The unstoppable argument. I've just read G.K. Beale on Revelation and that's all I need. So, <laughs> Yeah, I know. I'm just kind of being silly. I, I'm, for me, historical premill and amillennialism, namely the view either that Christ will return, establish a kingdom on earth for, for, a, for a period of time that will end up being the new heavens and new earth, or amillennialism, that uh, there is a presence of the kingdom now. And when Christ returns, we immediately enter into the final state of how we'll be in the new heavens and new earth are almost virtually the same view, <laughs> same view today. You both have the presence of the kingdom. Yeah. Uh, you both view the end as being uh, summated in the new heavens and new earth. One view just has a kind of a stepping stone towards it. Yeah. yeah so historic I, just, I, I don't actually see as two distinct positions. Yeah, I think I dispensational pre-mill is very distinct. Yeah. But, but not historic premill. Yeah, I can see that. But again, I just don't understand that stepping stone. Like I just never, it just never, it just kind of comes out of nowhere for me. But anyway, that's a different issue. Yeah. But I'll, let's talk, like he's got some weird stuff in here too that are just <laughs> weird, like weird in an interesting way, right? Like he gets in that whole discussion on about animals on 989, which was really interesting where he's like talking about how, uh you know in that kind of uh paragraph that that's that kind of uh starts with and he says that their courage may not fail in this race paul joins all creatures to them as companions so he's basically i thought wow that's really cool so part of the ways that we're not going to fail in our lack of hope right so having this resurrection hope he says that he gives us these companions he says uh, and then he says for because formless ruins are seen everywhere he says that everything in heaven and on earth strives after renewal. For since Adam by his fall brought into confusion the perfect order of nature, the bondage of which the creatures have been subjected uh, because of man's sin is heavy and grievous to them. Not that they are endowed with any perception, but they naturally long for the undamaged condition whence they have fallen. So that's really interesting. So he's like, okay, animals don't have a perception of their fallenness, right? They don't really have that kind of level of consciousness or soul. Uh, and so they don't, they can't like look at us and be like, Hey, you idiots, you sinned. And this is why I'm like this, but they have like this weird sort of sense of, uh, a, a longing, um, for that redemption, uh, that, that, that gets into the whole Romans eight discussion, which I thought, mm -hmm. well, that, that was kind of fascinating depending on how you read Romans eight. Uh, I sort of think of Romans eight and like the, the groaning and the longing and the birth pangs and stuff's actually it is a statement of, the idea that the natural world was not supposed to take the, the death of image bearers into it. And so, mm. so I don't always look at it as like a cosmic fallenness, but rather, okay, now these image bearers are actually going into the ground and dying in their bodies and that shouldn't have happened. But even still, I thought it was still kind of cool. I, I love his argument on page 997, which I've heard from a recent writer, but uh, he says in one sentence really well, in the middle of page 997, after studying 2 Corinthians 5, he says this, if souls did not outlive bodies, yeah. what is it that God has present when it is separated from the body? Meaning, when the Bible says when you die, you're going to be with the Lord, right? So we are with the Lord, but we're dead, but we all know that our body decays on earth. So yeah. what is present with God? Like, how, 
when we die, if, if I was to die tomorrow, I think I'll be with the Lord. I think I'll be with God. Yeah. But what will I be there if my body is here? And for Calvin, it's pretty straightforward. It's just the, the soul. Yeah. And in fact, he'll cite Hebrews, I believe, that will join the spirits and festal gathering. Not here. Somewhere else. Yeah. <laughs> no, he did. I um, remember that. Uh, I thought for some reason, I feel like it would fit really well right here, but he doesn't. Um, <laughs> anyways, I, I just think it's it's utterly fascinating that it's, it's such a straightforward argument that whatever you want, if you don't want to use the word soul, okay, who cares? But the point is, you are not just your body. You're not merely molecules. You're not merely a machine. So when you die, you, yourself, whatever that means, is with God. So the word we use for, for you who is not just your body is soul. But yeah. you know you can use any other word if you want. Yeah. But I think soul is a great venerable word. And it makes a lot of sense of what's going on. Yeah, so this seems to argue against <laughs> like what we would call Christian soul sleep. Yeah, soul sleep, uh, but also uh, Christian physicalism. Um, okay, what is that? Yeah, it's like a materialistic kind of monist view of the, okay. of the body and soul. Like... I actually don't really understand it, so I don't want to get too into it. But um, there's uh, some guys that have been arguing for it lately that I've been like, oh, I need to like kind of explore this a little bit more. But it's funny that like, he doesn't want to get speculative at certain points either, right? Like he talks about right. the intermediate state a couple of times, um, which was interesting for, to see him use that language. And he basically just says, eh, kind of don't know what it is. You know, you just sort of go there. We know it's Abraham's bosom. It's paradise. It's a place where you're, you're conscious. Uh, you're with Christ, uh, but beyond that, we really can't say a whole lot more. That's right. Yeah, I, I do like that about. I mean, I, I think it's okay to speculate, um, but oh, he speculates it, like crazy anyway. What he he does anyways. <laughs> but you got to be careful. Me, meaning, it's okay to meditate on truth and think through it all, but you got to be careful how you do that. I think as a public teacher, and I think he has a pretty good balance, Calvin. I think he's not really going to go too far. I was telling you beforehand, though, I thought it was funny that in, in chapter 23, he's like about reprobation. It's all in the mystery of God. I don't know too much about it. And then here he's like, let me give you the deets. <laughs> so it almost <laughs> kind of seems like, oh, maybe he didn't fully uh, follow his own, ad own advice, but yeah. we can forgive him. It's, it's a brilliant chapter. <laughs> yeah. And he not only goes after the Kilius, he goes after like really universalism on not, top of 996 and what we might even kind of describe as a, a sort of annihilationism. Um, he goes after the idea of soul sleep. That was something both, both the, the universalism and the soul sleep issues were ones re re related to the Anabaptists at the time. Mm. And, uh, so he takes pretty solid swipes. The soul sleep one is interesting because that was his first published theological book, uh, psychopanachia, but so, how do you say it? Psych, psych, psycho, And, okay. Uh, I, I so, believe you. Yeah, yeah, so he, that that's the one. Um, it's interesting because if you're a seventh day, he wrote that in France, right? I think so. It was like very probably early. against Servetus because because there's a whole history here. Servetus apparently believed that, yeah. and so remember there was like that private meeting that he was going to have in like 1534 yeah. or whatever with yeah. him, and then didn't work out. So there's this long history with him and Servetus. Anyway, yeah. story going. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Like if you're if you know or if you are a Seventh Day Adventist, um, it'd be an interesting work thing to work through because he he goes he goes pretty hard after the whole idea of soul sleep again uh he goes after the um dualism of the manichees he goes after the socinians so i mean he's he's really kind of like you know uh got his polemical uh knives out as we want yeah say. he's got his boxing gloves out <laughs> yeah however I, there is something that i feel like it's necessary to read on page 1005 
Um, this whole section, section 10, you could just read yeah. on the beatific vision, but but maybe if we start near the top. Oh, of, yeah. This this uh, whole section was incredible. That divine, partaking of the divine nature and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So maybe uh, near the top of 1005, you have here. If God contains the fullness of all good things in himself, like an inexhaustible fountain, he's reading the church fathers, right? Like yeah. there's no doubt about it. You, you were yeah. right earlier. I mean, like this is, I mean, it's the Psalms. Yeah. But, but this is the church fathers, this language. Nothing beyond him is to be sought by those who strive after the highest good and all the elements of happiness. Again, he must be reading the philosophers and saying, what you've discerned naturally, here's the supernatural answer to your yearning. Yeah. It's got to be, I mean, that, that language. As we have taught in many passages, thus Abraham, I'm your very great reward. So God himself is a great reward, Genesis 15.1. Yeah. David's statement agrees with this. Jehovah is my portion. A goodly lot has fallen to me. Another passage, I shall be satisfied with thy countenance. Indeed, Peter declares that believers are called in this to become partakers of the divine nature. Yeah. In his commentary, actually, Kelvin will use the word theosis here, I believe. Does he? Yeah. He says he's like, okay with it, but it's not his favorite. Something to that effect. Huh. How is this? Because he will be glorified in, in all his saints and will be marveled at in all who have believed. Catch that. God is glorified in us, but, yeah. but the in us is not just sort of like, uh, it's participatory. <laughs> Mm-hmm. all the verses he's reading god's glory will shine in us you think about the resurrection jesus is like moses comes down the mountain he's glowing with glory yeah. jesus in the resurrection is unique and special like there's a real sense in which the glory will be kind of from the inside out in us right yeah and then he goes on if the lord will share his glory power and righteousness with the elect nay will give himself to be enjoyed by them and what is more excellent will somehow make them to become one with himself. Oh. Let us remember that every sort of happiness is included under this benefit. Crazy. And although we have advanced considerably in this meditation, let's go on. He goes on. Yeah. Look, uh, you know, Isaiah says that I will not, God says, I will not share my glory with another. And yet when we're adopted as sons, it's a good point. We have his glory. Crazy. Why do you have that? Because you're adopted as an, like the natural son, we're adopted sons. We have all the God, all of the benefits that God has are become ours. And we here, are, we are it's because in, we become one with him. Yeah, we're the body of Christ in a real body sense. of Christ in a real not, sense. Not just a, not just a metaphor. I think a lot of times when we see things like the benefits of scripture, like forgiveness, we think of it like, um, like nominalist or voluntarist. It's just like a mm-hmm. brute fact. Yeah. You're forgiven. Obey the Bible because obedience is good. Yeah. But actually there's a, there's a real union with Christ by the Holy yeah. Spirit, yeah. which means that, there's a sort of seed in us that is being grown from the inside out. We move from one level of glory to another mm. such that when we are become partakers of the divine nature, namely when we do the virtues that Peter then continues to talk about. And eventually when we become one with him at the beatific vision, there's a real sense in which we are sharers of the glory of God. It's crazy. And so I think a lot of people like reform people want to be really careful. I get that. But they say things like, God will never share his glory with another. And we're, you know, like our righteousness is like filthy rags and, and so on. Yeah, but not after Christ saves us. <laughs> because, and, and, and even more so with the resurrection because... Even more so with the resurrection. Because of that qualitative change that he talks about where our bodies actually now become really... Incorrupt, immortal. For us, there's the continuity, yet at the same time, now there's this radical change. And uh, and so that's how this now could be possible. But it's Look, crazy when you, like right after the quote where you ended, he, he says here, like, I mean, because think about it, I'm feeling pretty blown away by this. I think you are too. 
And then he says here, he says, although we've advanced considerably in this meditation, let us nevertheless acknowledge that if our mental capacity can be compared with the height of this mystery, we still remain at the very lowest roots. Mm-hmm. So we're like, we're like, whoa, this is mind blowing. And it's like, yeah, that's, this is not even the beginning. Infinity. Even the last Bible verse he quotes, first Thessalonians 2.20, you are my crown and glory. I mean, it looks like that's what Paul is saying to Christians. Yeah. Um, so look, God glories in you. He glorifies you. You share in his glory. That's good. I mean, that's part of what salvation is. I mean, Romans 8 says we're going we're to be glorified at the end of our salvation, the chain of salvation, right? Like that's not just mere words. It's yeah. like, it's meaningful to the point that I think we need to be careful that we don't make so little of ourself that we do it in such a way as to displace God's salvation. Because yeah. Jesus has truly, he died. God, God, the word assumed humanity, the infinite plenitude of goodness himself became all that we are so that we might become sons of God and share in his goodness. Amen. Like if, if, if the word that spoke the existence, the universe into existence became human for our sake, maybe we should be more confident in saying that actually God glories in us, not because there's anything good in us. That's not the point. Yeah. but because of what Christ has done for us. And so by actually saying thing, like these words, like God glories, glories in us, we're actually insofar as we say that are glorifying God yeah. <laughs> because it's in and through us by Christ. Yeah. I mean, Augustine makes that point when he says that God crowns his own gifts in us, you know, yeah. and uh, it's just like, Oh, wait, like it's so gratuitous. It is gratuitous. And it's, uh, <laughs> I just think, I, I don't know why, maybe it's just my circles, but I just see so much where we, we denigrate ourselves so much after salvation. And you're like, but dude, Christ, yeah. <laughs> you're denigrating the gifts of God. Don't yeah. do that. It's it's like C.S. Lewis's essay, The Weight of Glory, you know, where mm. like, because in, in Lewis is helpful in it because he's like, oh, when I first heard that, like, you know, I should actually like, you know, glory in what I do, uh, that seemed wrong to me because I should be ascribing all to God. It's like, actually, no, when I see the good things in me that are given and I can actually recognize them as such, I am actually glorifying God through that. Is that that's what well done, my good and faithful servant means. When God is telling us well done, he's actually ascribing glory to himself through that. Like, oh, that's, that's really insightful. Um, on page 1007, um, so I've, I thought about this before. When you, when you, when you read about like the, the, the hell in scripture, it, it seems weird because it's like darkness that can't be illuminated by fire, fire that doesn't burn or illuminate because it doesn't burn the worms that live forever and doesn't illuminate the darkness. And the worms are not worms like we know because they're not burned. So you have fire and, and worms and, and darkness, but they're not our darkness or our worm or our fire because they don't act like our stuff. And so I, I kind of thought like, okay, these are not literal then, at least they're not what we experience. So they must be trying to tell us that this is just horrible. And then Calvin says the exact same thing on uh, page <laughs> oh, 107. Oh, what you're, doing. you're making yourself out to be as smart as Calvin. I'm making myself out to be the smartest guy in the world. Um, no, I just, I've, I've thought about this before. I think like, when you think about how it's like, you just have no idea what it is. Yeah. It's so, but then Calvin says, by such expressions, the Holy Spirit certainly intended to confound all our senses with dread. Well, yeah, I think so. Yeah. I, 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 it's one of those things where like, it, the descriptions of hell are so odd that they're not anything like our, like, it's not fire like our fire or else it would illumine and burn, but it doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's not our worms or else they'd be burnt. It's not our darkness or else the darkness would be illuminated. Yeah. Cause if you think about it, right. Like if, if the kind of like the fullness of, of who we are as humans is to know God, right. Remember that's when we're talking about through Job, we get to the end of Job. He's like, now I know you Yeah. after all that. Right. And so then when you don't have that kind of knowledge of God and that presence, when you're in hell, you only have his punitive presence then, uh, then it makes sense that your senses are confounded, right? Because you don't have knowledge anymore. And so I mean, what, what's it like when you are, you wake up in a dark room and you don't know where you are. I remember, I remember one time, this is kind of a terrible story. I remember woke up, waking up hungover once at my buddy's house and I woke up in his basement and it was pitch black and you couldn't see anything during the day. And I, I didn't know where I was. I couldn't <laughs> get around. I was still hungover and like, I was just, a wreck you know and i actually fell and split my chin open from it because i was just so disoriented by everything that's that's kind of like what i think he's saying here is that like your senses are so screwed up because you now have complete lack of knowledge of god right that and that happened over the weekend right <laughs> yeah sorry, sorry. it was a long time ago <laughs> <laughs> I was watching on a video that explains why you have the split lip in the video. Okay, I, I get it. Now. <laughs> I actually, did I did cut myself? Up. Okay, yeah, there you go. There. <laughs> um, <laughs> you remember, Rob I feel like Ford? we need to end. I feel like we need to end the podcast now, or we're going to get into all kinds of trouble. We might have. It'd be, it's going to be like having to like take a tweet down sometimes. You know, when you ever, you ever right, like right, put a you, really nasty tweet. Yeah, up yeah, yeah. I get it. Like, you know, delete it. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like though this is a perfect place I'm to not, end. I mean, I'm not, I'm not trolling the, anybody. Right now. <laughs> the resurrection of the unjust and eternal. We, we end this one with laughter, so it makes sense. Okay, I'm good. I think we went through this whole chapter and uh, pretty thoroughly. It's great. And we got a uh, book four coming up, external means. I'm excited for that. I think you're all going to love it. Uh, you're going to learn about church baptism, Lord's Supper, how to deal with the magistrate when they're mean to us also absolutely obey him remember magistrate whatever they say absolute authority nothing you never disagree ever he's telling you you worship it's it's, it's a conscience issue you always agree with what they say absolutely so we'll we'll (laughs) get it that's a joke none of that is exactly true at all Uh, (laughs) okay thanks Ian. we'll see you next time yeah